Magovanen. Welcome to the Tolkien Lore Channel. I'm the Tolkien Geek. And one of the very prominent themes in a lot of Tolkien stories is the idea of fate and free will. It doesn't come up often very explicitly, but if you know where to look for it, it comes up all over the place. There's a lot of emphasis placed, for example, on Bilbo's finding the ring and it passing down to Frodo by Gandalf. And I'm going to do a video on that eventually. But in this video, what I want to do is focus on the topic of fate and free will more broadly, specifically in light of a essay that was published in The Nature of Middle-Earth, which just, of course, recently came out last year in September of 2021. And this particular piece adds a really interesting look into how Tolkien was thinking about this topic, and we'll get to how that may be kind of strange in, in certain contexts, but first I want to lay the groundwork with what we could kind of divine from his works that were published prior to the nature of Middle-earth and get a look at what those gave us in terms of how he might have been thinking about it. So one of the clearest ideas of fate and free will that we get in any of his main writings, The Silmarillion, The Hobbit, and The Lord of the Rings, comes from The Silmarillion and specifically the Ainu Lindale, which is the music of the Ainur, which is the very beginning of the whole work and is really the creation story for what we know of as Middle-earth or Arda more broadly. And in the story of the Ainu Lindale, Eru, the god figure, creates the Ainur, who are the holy ones, which are basically kind of like equivalent to angels in some sense. And when he creates them, he starts teaching them music. And each of them sing individually. And eventually he has them all sing, starting in small groups, but bigger and bigger groups. And then he propounds a theme to them that he wants them all to sing in unison. And this is how we get to the creation of the world, because when they sing before him, at the end of the song, which Morgoth, or Melkor, the devil figure in the Silmarillion, kind of screws up, you know, in the middle, at the end of it, he basically says, so the theme that you've been playing, I'm going to show you what you were singing, and gives them a visual image of what they, you know, were singing, and it's like a movie version, sort of, of the world and its history. And then he says, now I'm going to actually make these things exist and let them be. And that's Ea, which is why the universe is called Ea in Lord of the Rings and everything else. I mean, you don't really see that term in Lord of the Rings, but in the mythology more broadly, Ea is basically the term for everything that is. So in the process of this, it ends up kind of as an authorial aside, tells us that because of the vision that Ea of Ea that Iluvatar gave to the Ainur, they know much of what was, what is, and what is to come. But to nobody did Iluvatar, you know, reveal everything, and so only he really kind of has the full story. And this is kind of a way of saying this is how, for example, Mondos may be able to prophesy certain things in the future, or how different Valar or Maiar might have foresight and things like that. They know some things that are going to happen before they happen because they've already kind of seen it in a like pre-production version of the movie, so to speak. So that's how they know a lot of things that are in the future. They've kind of seen the story play out. And this, of course, is the idea of fate. 
And the interesting thing about that, of course, is that it's not really exactly clear, but it seems implied that Iluvatar has complete knowledge of everything that's going to happen, which would seem to give it a very strong predestination-type fate idea because it seems like, well, all of this stuff has already been kind of decided and played out, and now the actors are just playing their defined roles. But interestingly enough, in the same chapter, we get a comment from Iluvatar himself saying, to men, I will give a new gift. And one of the things that it says is they will seek to go beyond the world, to, to leave its boundaries. But also, they will have a power to shape their own lives and, you know, affect the world in ways that are not necessarily consistent with the music, which is as fate to all else. So you get the idea that while, yes, there is a story that's going to play out, and you have Iluvatar who seems to know everything that's going to happen, on the other hand, men are able to do things that are maybe a little bit outside the bounds of what's already kind of predetermined, or there's space between the predetermined things that men can affect in ways that elves or Valar or Maiar can't. This idea, however, is also somewhat hedged by the fact that in the process of the music itself, or at the very end, Iluvatar kind of calls out Melkor saying, you know, you try to mess up the music by just pridefully doing your own thing, but I'm going to show you that nobody can alter the music in my despite, and everything that you did is just going to end up flowing back into what I wanted it to be and redound to the glory of the whole. So, there's a sense in which you get the idea that the plan can be altered, but the ultimate end goal really can't be. There's got to be, there's limits in some ways on what can be changed. And it's not really clear exactly what can be changed from all of this because it doesn't go into a huge amount of detail. But you do get the sense that certain things are just going to happen. And that's why the Ainur can predict them. There are some things that men can actually change, but they can't be changed in Iluvatar's despite, so they can't completely counteract the overall plan, as it were. So, that's a pretty good overview of what we get from the Silmarillion. Most of what we get from other sources doesn't necessarily tell us much more in terms of detail. We get a lot of references to, the in The Hobbit, for example, of Bilbo's luck, or the luck of the group, you know, turning out to do really nicely, even though it seemed like at first it wasn't, you know, that that great. And at the very end of the story, Gandalf tells Bilbo rather pointedly, you don't suppose this was all managed just by luck for your sole benefit. You're a very fine fellow, Mr. Baggins, but you're only a small person in a wide world, after all. And he doesn't say anything very explicit there, but he's clearly pointing to the fact that Bilbo's luck is not mere luck. There's more to it than that. This gets a lot stronger in The Lord of the Rings, of course, because in The Lord of the Rings we get a lot of references to chance meeting, if chance you call it, or things of that nature. And, of course, we have Gandalf's conversation with Frodo saying, you know, I can put it no plainer than that Bilbo was meant to find the ring and not by its maker. And if he was meant to find it, then you were meant to have it, and that may be an encouraging thought. Frodo, of course, is not very encouraged, but Gandalf is making the point this is part of a broader plan, and if there is a plan, 
that would seem to imply that there is a end goal which is good, which can be attained. Otherwise, why have the plan? So there's definitely some elements of this going on. Now, there are very specific instances of stories where this becomes a stronger theme. The story of Turin Turumbar is, for instance, fraught with the idea of what exactly is free will, what exactly is fate or the curse of Morgoth. There's a lot going on there. That deserves a whole video unto itself. I'm not going to dig into all that here. But this gives us enough of a background to get some idea of what Tolkien is maybe looking at. The only piece I want to add here is Tolkien being a Catholic, theologically speaking, he would have to be in the camp of God has total foreknowledge. Now, Catholics say that it's not predestination, but it is total foreknowledge. And interestingly enough, Tolkien in this piece on In the Nature of Middle-Earth actually kind of acknowledges that there's a tension there. Uh, and of course, depending on which religious sect you belong to, especially within Christianity, there's a, a wide range of possibilities you can fall into. But, you know, the Calvinists, for instance, they take the total pre-foreknowledge uh, to the conclusion of, well, it's predestination. Everything is predestined. There's no changing what God wants. We don't really have free will at all. On the other end of the spectrum, you have open theists who would say that God knows some things, but there are a lot of things that are still open, hence the name open theism, and therefore we have free will and can affect things in ways that even God can't 100% predict with accuracy. So there's a wide range within Christianity, but Catholicism holds to the view that while things are neither, while things are not completely predestined, God still has foreknowledge of everything that's going to happen. How you reconcile that depends on which theologian you ask, probably, but that's the basic idea that we would assume Tolkien is working with from his own point of view as a Catholic. Now, this, of course, is consistent with what we've got from the Silmarillion and the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. It all kind of fits in there in the sense that if, if God in the real world can foreknow everything but humans have free will, it can also be the case that Eru Iluvatar can foreknow everything because he knows the whole story, and yet men, unlike other creatures, can out can affect the outcome in ways that they, you know, these other creatures can't, elves, dwarves, whoever. So his Catholicism lines up relatively neatly with what we have. Where it gets interesting is with this piece from the Nature of Middle Earth. So in the Nature of Middle Earth, there's some writings that Carl Hostetter put in here. And they're related primarily, as so many things are with Tolkien, to a discussion of the philology of certain elvish words, and in particular, umbar and umbar. And umbar is the idea of fate. Umbar is like the habitable world. And he basically comes back and says, well, the common root word, mbar, for both of these words is the idea of something being settled, not in the sense of necessarily settled with settlements, but it's, you know, settled in the sense of it's it's a settled thing, it's, it's done, it's decided, that kind of thing. Uh, but so you get the settled world, which, you know, is kind of the same thing whether you mean settlements or, you know, something that's been kind of decided, because once you settle an area, you have kind of made it 
you know, it, it, there, there's a reason why that word can kind of work both ways. At its root, it has its own meaning that can go both ways. So you have the settled world, but you also have the settled order of things, which is fate. That's where that comes from. And he then compares this also to the Sindarin word, Amarth, which is their word for fate, and he describes it as the order and conditions of the physical world as established and preordained at creation, and that part of this order which was immutable by personal wills. That could mean a lot of things. It could mean something like what we think of as fate, in the sense of like a predetermined outcome, but it could also mean something very simple, like you can't change the laws of physics by choosing it. We can't do that as human beings, or any other thing can do it with free will. That's not a thing you can change. And so in that sense, there's also certain physical results in the universe that cannot be altered by human intelligence. So, I mean, like the rotation of the stars, there's nothing really we can do about that. No matter what our technology becomes in the future, I dare say we'll never be able to affect those kinds of things because they're just too grand a scale for us to even do anything. So that's he starts off with this kind of linguistic analysis. Then he actually talks about Bilbo's story, and he says Bilbo was fated to find the ring, but he was not necessarily fated to give it up voluntarily, as he does in the beginning, beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring. He could have kept it, and if he had, fate would have found some other way of making sure that the ring kind of made its journey to Mount Doom. There would have been some other means by which that could have occurred. And so here again, we see that idea of he has some will in the matter and can change kind of like the course of history, but the ultimate end goal is probably going to be the same, or at least not very different. So that seems to kind of fit with what we had before. Tolkien is also very careful here to define what he means by a free will choice, and he doesn't mean something as simple as, I had no compulsion, nothing was coercing my will. And he basically describes what he means this way. He says, Only those efforts of wills are free which were directed to a fully aware purpose, e.g., or for example, not instinctive or half-conscious decisions, for example, to take a longer route to avoid a marsh. He gives the example of that. So, you know, if you're on a journey and you're faced with two alternatives, a longer road on a perfectly normal road, or a shorter path which would take you through a marsh, choosing the longer road, absent some other compelling reason not to, is not so much a free will choice as it is just a matter of habit. Like, I'm not going to walk in a marsh. It's kind of decided for me, in a sense, by my pre-existing preferences, goals, whatever they are. He also notes that fate does not include predetermined characteristics of individual actors. So, for example, you know, your personality, things that you are feel really strongly about or have values about or that sort of thing. You know, there's a lot of your inward character that is, quote, determined, unquote, but it's not determined in the sense of fate. It's just like a thing that is because it's a part of who you are. That's not what fate is. What fate is, really, is what he calls the chances, quote-unquote, of the world. So, broader events that occur that aren't really just individual to a person, but are, you know, confluence of multiple things going on. 
then he really starts getting into the idea of the fate and free will dichotomy in, in this issue. And he mentions that the problem of free will and foreknowledge of Eru was not resolved by the Eldar. It was a clash of Umbar with purposeful wills. And he says that the elves, in thinking about this, though they never resolved it, he says they thought about this question and they said that the best analogy, though still not perfect, is with a an author who authors a tale and who... And here, you you, you got to know he's thinking of himself because he says many authors have found that in the process of writing a story, things may come about which were not preconceived by the author. It wasn't planned that way. And of course, we know from his own writings, many of these things happened in his own writing of The Lord of the Rings. For example, Faramir, he specifically says, I didn't Think of him, I didn't even want him, but here he came, walking out of the forest of Athelion. You know, Faramir was not a planned part of Frodo and Sam's journey, nor was he even a planned character, but bam, there he was. So he's clearly drawing on his own experience, and he's not the only one, but he's drawing on his own experience to say that an author may have broad designs for the story and have a conclusion that is planned, but that doesn't mean that everything in the story is known to the author ahead of time. Sometimes you have to actually write the whole thing to find out how it's actually going to play out. And this is where it gets really interesting because he now is giving us an idea of how fate and free will interact, which does not seem wholly consistent with the Catholic view of total foreknowledge, but yet not predestination. Carl Hostetter even notes in, at the end that he probably abandoned this idea because you can he can tell from where this text ends and how it ends that it looks like Tolkien kind of stopped writing in, around this point. And Hostetter kind of surmises, you know, he probably realized, wait a minute, I'm kind of contradicting Catholic theology, and I don't really want to do that with my story. I want it to be kind of consistent with my own worldview. Uh, and this, of course, is just a guess on Hostetter's part. It's not clear from the text itself, but I tend to think he's probably right, because in his post-Lord of the Rings rewriting of much of the Silmarillion, his goal was to bring it as closely as possible to something matching the real world and also consistent with Catholic thought because that was for him the truth. So he ends up with this idea kind of hanging out there of the author who he knows kind of the end that he's getting toward and he knows what the characters are like and therefore what they might do in given situations, but he doesn't know every single thing that they're going to get involved in along the way during the plot. And so he's... Now, again, we have to remember that he specifically says the elves say this is just the best analogy we can come up with, not a perfect analogy. So, in what way is that analogy not perfect? Eh? It's, you know, he, he doesn't really explain. But what I find most interesting about this whole thing is Tolkien trying to reason out what the interaction of fate and free will looks like leads him actually to a view which is not really consistent with the theology of his own faith. It's really fascinating to see that at work. And, and of course, he also kind of pulls the sleight of hand of saying, the Eldar never resolved this, you know, this tension of the idea of fate and free will. 
they never, you know, gave us a straight answer to that, which, you know, it, it might be Tolkien's way of saying, there's not really an easy answer for this question. I mean, I don't, maybe that's what he's trying to get at. Maybe he's trying to say that the elves just hadn't got there yet, but that he thought there was a good answer. I don't know, but I just find it really fascinating that Tolkien, who by any account was a deeply thoughtful person, doesn't even come up with a really strong resolution of this issue in his own musings through the process of trying to define how fate and free will interact. So I find that fascinating on a number of levels. Uh, but just in terms of the story, it's it's fascinating just because we now have some idea of what he might have gone down the road of saying had he not kind of checked himself and probably thought, wait, this this doesn't really work with Catholic thought. I can't I can't go there. Um, but it's interesting too how it kind of works with what was already in the Silmarillion and the Hobbit. And I shouldn't say already in the Silmarillion because obviously that was not published prior to his death. And who knows exactly how he might have rewritten the Ainu Lindelay had he had time to just completely finalize it. We can't really know that. But you know, in either event, the the wording of the Ainu Lindelay is kind of consistent with both. You could read it in terms of being consistent with the Catholic view, but you could also read it in terms of being consistent with his view, express, not his view, I shouldn't say that, his expression in this Nature of Middle-Earth piece. So there's a really interesting tension within Tolkien's own writing mirroring the tension between fate and free will. And so it's kind of interesting to see that working out because he's trying to resolve the issue that is, you know, latent in his own stories and in so doing creates just more tension, which apparently never gets fully resolved because there's no other writing where he just specifically addresses this issue, at least that I know of, and comes down and says, this is the answer. So... That's kind of the broad issue of fate and free will as shown in his stories and in this piece in The Nature of Middle Earth, which is titled Fate and Free Will. And that's pretty much what I wanted to cover here. Like I said, I'm probably going to do some additional videos in the future, particularly on Bilbo and Frodo's story and on Turin's story. And there may be some others I might try to do, but the, those are the ones that are really strong in terms of the fate and free will themes. So look forward to those in the future. Not sure when I'm going to do those. I'm probably not going to do them straight after this one, but they are, you know, in the plan. So speaking of plans, uh, and that's another one, you know, I don't know exactly how those are going to turn out, but the end goal of having a video is there. So that's the fate part of it. The free will and chances of the world. We'll see how all that turns out. At any rate, Hope you enjoyed the video. If you did, please give it a thumbs up and share it around. Share your comments below about what you think about these issues and how you think maybe Tolkien might have resolved this if he had had time and really just done it, sat down and gone through all the thought process if he had had the time. And you can also, of course, subscribe to the channel if you want to catch more of this content. Don't forget to, get, don't forget to hit that bell icon so you catch everything. You can follow me on Twitter at JRRTLore and catch some occasional Tolkien-related trivia questions. And I'm also on Rumble, Odyssey, and have podcast versions of these as well. 
Until the next time, I'm the Tolkien Geek, signing out for the Tolkien Lore Channel. Namadier.